Welcome back to another episode of the Superhumanized Podcast. And as those of you who've been following this show for a while know, here we're all about optimizing our human experience and taking control as much as we can over our own health and well-being. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. There are multiple studies that have confirmed the incredible link between the health of our microbiome, the trillions of organisms that live in our digestive tract, and our likelihood of getting viral diseases like COVID-19. A lifestyle of low-fiber diets, processed foods, little connection with nature, and overuse of pharmaceuticals messes up the microbiome and makes us more susceptible to viruses than we naturally would be. There is a solution to this, though. Our microbiome is constantly evolving, which means we can nurture it back to health if we're struggling, and we can protect it and make it even stronger when we're well and want to stay well. My guest today, Dr. Robin Chutkin, is a board-certified gastroenterologist and author of the best-selling digestive health books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. In her latest book, The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out, she shares new insights and cutting-edge research about our gut and our health, as well as a practical plan for strengthening the incredible antiviral defenses located in our gut and resolving symptoms of illness. Dr. Chutkin received her bachelor's from Yale University and her medical degree from Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, where she also did her internship and residency and served as chief resident. She completed her fellowship in gastroenterology at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Chutkin has been on the faculty at Georgetown University Hospital since 1997, and in 2004, she founded the Digestive Center for Wellness, an integrative gastroenterology practice dedicated to uncovering the root cause of GI disorders. Dr. Chutkin incorporates microbial optimization, nutritional therapy, mind-body techniques, and lifestyle changes into her therapeutic approach to digestive disorders. She has been the medical expert on The Today Show, CBS This Morning, The Doctors, The Dr. Oz Show, The Megyn Kelly Show, and has her own PBS special entitled Gut Bliss. And today she will share with us her powerful tools and tips to strengthening the gut immune system. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Robin, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I am so happy to connect with you today. Ariana, it's such a thrill to be on your podcast and thank you so much for hosting me. 
Absolutely. I have been really excited for this conversation because you are very well known in the realm of something that is just foundational for our health, and that is gut health. You have been a leading voice in making us healthier from the inside out. Your latest book, The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out, is actually your fourth book. And it is a treasure trove. I consider it essential reading for all those of us who want to optimize our gut health and general well-being, and especially in these times. In your book, you share new insights and cutting-edge research about our gut and our health, as well as a practical plan for strengthening the incredible antiviral defenses that are located in our gut and also resolving symptoms of illness. What inspired you to write this book now, Robin? As you said, I've been writing digestive wellness books for a while. And actually, my second book, The Microbiome Solution, which came out in 2015, I felt like it was almost a little bit early because if you think back to seven years ago, people, yeah, I know about the microbiome, but I don't think it was really at the forefront of most people's medical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And not just the lay audience, but even amongst healthcare practitioners. So we've seen every year an incredible amount of new scientific literature that's piled up showing the importance of the microbiome, not just for gut health, but for brain health, for heart health, for all kinds of different circumstances. And so I wrote that book in 2015, and I think the book did well, and some people were interested, but it was still almost like a little bit of a fringe area for people. In 2020, when the pandemic really struck, I remember thinking, goodness, the governments all over the world are doing a pretty good job talking about vaccination, masking, social distancing, quarantining, but nobody's really talking about how we can be healthier hosts, how we can be more resilient. And it would be almost like Ariana if we were talking about heart disease and all we were talking about was cardiac catheterizations mm -hmm. and statins to lower cholesterol, and nobody was talking about the importance of fruit and vegetables and exercise and how to have a healthier heart to begin with. And the dialogue has to include both. Both are very important. And so I was really struck by this lack of public health messaging and quite frankly, lack of public awareness. So in July, 2020, an article came out, a study that was published here in the US, looking at 53,000 patients taking acid-blocking drugs, the potent acid-blocking drugs we know as proton pump inhibitors. So drugs like Nexium, Prilosec, Prevacid, et cetera. These are some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in the world because they're really good at what they do, which is to completely shut down the stomach acid, that pump in your stomach that produces stomach acid. And while that may be really helpful if you have bad acid reflux or an ulcer, it interrupts digestion and really disrupts it. And it also does something else, which I realized people didn't know. And so people think of the digestive tract as a digestive organ, but they don't think of it as a defensive organ. And it turns out that stomach acid is one of your most important defenses for combating viruses and other pathogens because the acid literally denatures that viral protein and renders it inactive. So Ariana, I remember asking my husband, who's not in the medical field, I said to him, when that article came out, I said, so you know this, right? Obviously, if you don't have stomach acid, you're going to be at higher risk of COVID because that's what the study found. People taking an acid blocking drug, a proton pump inhibitor, so we're not talking about antacids, People taking these PPIs once a day were at double the risk, and people taking them twice a day had a three to four-fold increased risk. 
So I said to my husband, I said, so you know that, right? And he looked at me and it was like, no, I don't know that. Like, how would I know that? And I was like, because stomach acid, you know, it, it kills his stuff. And he was like, oh, I didn't know that. So then I asked a couple of my medical colleagues in other fields, dermatology, pathology, and they also were like, well, I didn't know that, but it makes sense. And then I asked some of my GI colleagues and they also were like, okay, interesting. And so I realized, okay, if people, highly specialized medical professionals don't realize this, the chances that the average person out there who may be taking one of these drugs realizes it pretty slim. And then I, I thought about writing an editorial. I talked to my book agent, but then the literature, the articles just kept coming. So the next article was one from University of Massachusetts, which showed that the microbiome was a more accurate predictor of outcome from COVID than anything else could predict who would be hospitalized and upon a ventilator, be in the intensive care unit, even death from acute respiratory distress. And again, I just felt like there wasn't any focus on this concept that the health of the host matters and it matters greatly. It matters maybe even more than the potency of the pathogen. So that was really the impetus. This is, these are really, this is incredible information that you're sharing in your book and some of your really specialized colleagues and medical doctors and experts. I am part of the general public who had no idea about the interaction of these acid blocking drugs, these PPIs with our defense system and how it enables viruses to survive much better and basically provides for worse outcomes for, in this case, for COVID patients. And what's scary about this is these drugs are ubiquitous. And a lot of times they're taken because the symptoms that are managed by taking these drugs actually arise from certain lifestyle choices that could be changed, right? That's absolutely right. There are circumstances like a severe bleeding ulcer. There's a rare condition called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome that involves overproduction of acid, but that's exceedingly rare. So the vast majority of people, as you point out, Ariana, who are taking these drugs have heartburn, acid reflux that can be greatly improved by making some dietary and lifestyle changes. And what kind of changes? Again, what happens when you have reflux, it's not overproduction of acid, but it's inappropriate relaxation of that sphincter, that valve between the esophagus and the stomach, whose job it is to sh shut tight after you swallow and to make sure that the contents in the stomach stay in the stomach and they don't reflux back into the esophagus. But what happens is if we overfill our stomachs and we eat a larger meal than we probably should be, that can overpower the valve and open it up. If we're eating food with a higher fat content, a lot of animal protein or dairy, that will typically also open up the valve because that slows down emptying of the stomach. Foods with a high fat content are harder to digest. And that means the stomach is going to stay full longer and there's a likelier, there's a higher likelihood that sphincter will open up. We know that what time of day or night you eat matters a lot because the stomach literally has a bedtime. The stomach and the rest of the GI tract is much less active once the sun sets. And where I am in Washington, D.C., that means five o'clock, it's pitch black at this time of year. And unfortunately, most people are putting in the majority of their calories sometime around six or seven or even eight or nine o'clock. And what that means, again, is that the stomach is going to empty much more slowly 
there's going to be a lot more opportunity for those contents, those stomach contents to reflux up into the esophagus and cause problems. And then, of course, there are substances that act on the valve itself. So things like alcohol and caffeine and my favorite chocolate, all of those (laughs) things can open up that lower esophageal sphincter and cause acid reflux. So in my practice, there are some very simple things I ask my patients to do. I tell them, eat breakfast like a king or queen and lunch like a prince or princess and dinner like a pauper. It's an old saying, but it still rings true. So calorie shifting, eating your larger meal earlier in the day is tremendously helpful. Thinking about the fat content of your meals, not overfilling your stomach, sometimes just eating the same amount of food, but splitting it up into smaller servings can be incredibly helpful. Cutting back a little bit on caffeine, it doesn't mean you have to completely give it up, but if you're having four cups of espresso, that's a problem. So what I find is that we can get most people off of these drugs, and we can instead recommend that they use antacids or H2 blockers like Pepsid, the kinds of drugs that you can take only as needed. So you overdid it at your high school reunion or a wedding or just a night out, and you're having some symptoms, you can take something, but you don't have to take something every day that is dramatically interrupting digestion and also leaving you more vulnerable. Yes. And I really love your approach. It's not about telling people you can't drink coffee anymore. You can't have chocolate anymore or alcohol. It's about just balancing it and taking care of yourself well. In order to take care of ourselves, I think it's really crucial that we actually understand what we're taking care of. And a lot of the people in my audience are quite good ways down the path on their journey to wellness and others are just at the beginning. Could you give us a bird's eye view of, for those who are just learning about this, what is actually the gut? What organs actually belong to the gut? The gut really starts in the mouth. Even though the air, nose, and throat surgeon claim the gut, the digestive tract starts in the mouth. And when you think about it, Ariana, it actually, digestion starts before the food even gets into the mouth because mm-hmm your salivary glands can start to release enzymes, salivary amylase and lipase, et cetera, to break down starch and fat just at the sight of food or the smell of food. When you say you start salivating, that's what it is. (laughs) Salivation is the initial part of digestion to lubricate the oral passage and to also start to break down the food. So the digestive tract starts with the mouth and then it goes down into the esophagus, which is a long tubular structure. And the food gets taken down the esophagus through these sort of wave-like contractions, sort of like an inchworm. One part contracts and the part below, et cetera. And of course, gravity helps tremendously. So if you are eating again your meals during the day and you're upright for a little bit after, that will help as opposed to if you're eating and then you're reclining in bed and you don't have the help of gravity because now your esophagus is horizontal. So we'd go through the esophagus and then into the stomach. And the stomach is where the acid gets secreted and the food gets churned up into small particles that we call chyme, C-H-Y-M-E. And there are more enzymes acting here. There's, there's gastric acid, there's pepsin, et cetera. Then we have the small intestine. And the small intestine consists of three parts. The first part is the duodenum that's in continuity with the stomach, then the jejunum, then the ileum. And that's where a lot of the active digestion happens, the carbohydrate metabolism, the carbohydrate absorption, the fat absorption, et cetera. And we have more enzymes again. So for example, we have bile that's made in the liver that gets secreted into the duodenum, that first part of the small intestine. 
And the function of bile, it, it plays a few different roles, but one of the main functions is to emulsify fats. It's like when you have a greasy plate and you're trying to wash it and you wash it with water alone and the grease doesn't come off, but you put some dishwashing detergent on it. And now all of a sudden you can get the plate squeaky clean because the detergent is emulsifying the fats. And so that's what bile does to allow us to be able to absorb fat through the small intestine. So we have a lot of active breaking down of food into its sort of micronutrient particles and then being absorbed through the gut lining, which is this very thin net, like a fishing net with small holes in it. So it comes down through the duodenum, jejunum, and the ileum. And again, all these parts of the intestine are very specialized. So for example, in the esophagus, the cells are squamous cells, and they're not used to seeing acid because the acid is supposed to be in the stomach. In the stomach, the cells are columnar, and they're protected by a mucus layer so that when the acid is secreted, it doesn't also damage the stomach lining. And that's why acid is a problem for the esophagus, but not for the stomach. Similarly, in the last part of the small intestine, in the ileum, that's where we see reabsorption of the bile acids. We see absorption of B12. We see a lot of different things happening in the ileum compared to the duodenum and jejunum. And then finally, we have the large intestine, which is also known as the colon. And the main function of the colon, there's not much nutrient absorption going on there, but there are two really important things. One is that when the products of digestion arrive in the colon, they're still quite liquid. And as they travel along the colon, down through the cecum, up the ascending colon, across the transverse colon down the descending colon, into the sigmoid rectum, and finally out through the anus, there's a lot of fluid, a lot of water that gets reabsorbed through that gut lining so that by the time the products of digestion make their way to the end, you ideally have a nice formed stool. And a lot of that brown color is from dead red blood cells and bacteria that are also main constituents of stool. But there's not a lot of absorption of nutrients that happens in the colon. The other important thing that happens in the colon is as we go through the digestive tract from north to south, from the mouth all the way down to the anus, the pH gradient of the gut changes from highly acidic in the upper tract to much less acidic lower down, and the gradient of bacteria changes from very little bacteria in the upper GI tract to a lot of bacteria in the colon. And that's intentional. That's not an accident. And again, that's why blocking, another reason why blocking the stomach acid is such a problem because now you have an alkali stomach and you get a lot of overgrowth of bacteria and other organisms because you don't have the acid to kill them off and make it less hospitable. So in the colon, you have a lot of active fermentation of the food by bacteria to produce healthy substances like short chain fatty acids, that the cells lining the GI tract use an, as an energy source and that are also important for modulating our immune system. So I love with this pod, it's all about being superhuman. And I think that really starts with understanding these physiological processes because you know what's interesting, Ariana, is people are always asking me, what probiotic should I take or what nutrient, what superfood, et cetera. And my best piece of advice is that we are so beautifully designed and we are such incredible animals and, and machines too, if you will, that it is more about not sabotaging things. So the bigger problem that I see in my gastroenterology practice is that people are taking medications, be it antibiotics, acid-blocking drugs, steroids, et cetera, that are messing up our body's ability to defend us, to take care of us. 
And so it's not a supplement that you need to go out and take. It's you need to stop doing something that you're doing, whether it's the four cups of espresso or the four glasses of wine at night or the acid blocking drugs or whatever it is. So we are inadvertently sabotaging these incredible host defenses. You think about the gut lining. And one of the things I'd like to point out to your audience is that when food is inside our gut, it's not actually inside our body. It's in this long hollow tube that runs all the way again from the mouth to the anus, about 30 feet. And it is kept outside our body in this hollow tunnel by this thin gut lining. In order for it to get inside our body, it has to get broken down and absorbed through the gut lining, carried in the bloodstream to all the different organs of the body that will use it as a food source, the kidneys, the brain, the lungs, et cetera. And so again, if you damage that gut lining through your taking too many NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, so Motrin, Advil, Anacin, Aleve, all of those drugs, you're taking a few too many doses of that, you are potentially going to make little holes in that gut lining. You're going to increase intestinal permeability. You're going to make yourself more vulnerable. If you're taking antibiotics and you're killing off a lot of the bacteria in the gut lining, those bacteria are designed to protect us. They are working in concert with the immune cells on the other side of the gut lining to make sure we have an appropriate immune response. So I think when people, if you think just about those three things, Ariana, if you think about the stomach acid, the gut lining, and the gut microbiome, within those three things, you have some of the most potent host defenses. Yes. And then you think about the things, again, people taking acid-blocking drugs, pe people taking non-steroidals, people taking antibiotics. And it's not just medicine, of course. It's also the diet. It's lack of exposure to nature. It's stress. It's lack of sleep. All of these things can affect the gut. So I really want to give people the tools so that they can say, aha, this is how it works. All right. This is what I have to do. Don't have to go to the store and buy something. And hopefully you don't have to go to the doctor. You, you have to understand how this stuff works and you have to really optimize it. Yes. Excellent, Robin. Thank you so much for explaining to us in such a concise and easy to understand way what the gut is, what the different of the different parts are, and also how they get interfered with by some of the lifestyle choices that we make, or in some cases, half are forced to make. And also pointing out what wonderful animals, machines, whatever you want to call it, we are. And we have these incredible systems within us. And in your book, you've put the focus on strengthening these antiviral defenses that are located in our gut. And part of this is, of course, also to understand the our immunity. And you speak about the innate and adaptive immunity, and also how too much or not enough of either of this can be detrimental for us. Could you explain this to our audience, please. Sure, Ariana. You know, this concept of a Goldilocks immune system is one of my favorite things to talk about. But before I do that, I just want to circle back to something you said that I think is so important. When we're talking about the pharmaceuticals, you said decisions we make or sometimes decisions we're forced to make. You want to make the point that I, as a conventionally trained doctor, gastroenterologist, I am delighted that we have the options of these pharmaceuticals for when we need them. If we think mm -hmm. about drugs like antibiotics, they save millions of lives every year from severe infection. Acid blocking drugs can be critical for people with bleeding ulcers and some other conditions. 
And non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can be incredible for inflammation and pain. When I tore my medial collateral ligament uh, about five years ago, snowboarding in Utah, I wouldn't have been able to get back on the plane without some hefty doses of Motrin for me to be able to straighten my leg without pain. So these are drugs that are incredibly potent and effective, and Mm -hmm. we are lucky to have them. But what we need to do is we need, we need to be more judicious with, with how we use them. Yeah. And as consumers, we need to be aware of the side effects. And unfortunately, we're not always being told the full story. Sometimes it's, oh, yeah, take this. It's great. And nobody's telling you, by the way, this drug is going to disrupt digestion. It can lead to increased fracture risk. It can make you more vulnerable to viruses, et cetera. So it is really, there are people out there who sometimes have to use these drugs. And one of the things I was really happy about with the book, The Antiviral Gut, is that in the therapeutic section of the book, which is literally half the book, I go through each of these drugs. I give people, here are the questions you need to ask in bullet point. Ask your doctor these questions. You know, Could I use this NSAID, which is not as bad of the gut? Could I use a dose lower than this, which is a safe dose? Could I try? Here's physical therapy, ice, what other things could work? And I do this for each one of these many drugs, some of the ones we talked about and some others we haven't had a chance to get to, because I want it to be actionable. I don't want to just say, okay, these drugs are terrible, don't use them. That's not helpful. So Mm -hmm. I want to give you the information, and then I want to tell you, here are some steps you can do. And even if you can't get off the drug, just taking a slightly lower dose, or maybe you can take it every other day, or maybe you can mix some Motrin with Tylenol, Motrin for the first dose, Tylenol for the next dose, so that you end up taking less Motrin overall and doing less damage to the gut. So it's really important to me as a practicing gastroenterologist to make sure that I'm giving people practical, actionable advice and not just being the bearer of bad news about how all of this stuff is so bad. So back to the Goldilocks immune system. As you said, we have an innate and an adaptive immune system. But if you think more generally about how the immune system works... When we have an overactive immune system, we can respond to internal threats within our body in an overblown way. And so the classic example of that would be autoimmune diseases. What happens when somebody has an autoimmune disease is that their body and their immune system is reacting to normal tissue and it's recognizing it as foreign, as an enemy, and it's trying to destroy it. So in the case of rheumatoid arthritis, it's the joints. In the case of psoriasis, it's the skin. In the case of the gut conditions I see, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, two forms of inflammatory bowel disease, it's the gut bacteria and the gut lining. And so there is something wrong with the immune system here because it's overreacting to normal stimuli. So those are the internal threats. When we think about an overreactive immune system and external threats, we think about things like allergies. So seasonal allergies to bee stings, et cetera. And if you think about these two sets of diseases, Ariana, what you will realize is that in the last 50, 60 years, we've seen a tremendous upswing in the amounts of different autoimmune diseases and the number of people who suffer from them. So we're now up to over a hundred different autoimmune diseases. One in four Americans have at least one, and many people have several. They tend tend to travel together because a root cause is similar. And we'll get to that in a moment for what causes a sort of overreactive immune system. So I think back to my childhood in my school, nobody had food allergies, the kids, maybe there was one kid in the whole school who had a peanut allergy. And now I, I know few children who don't have allergies. It's almost now the norm rather than the exception. And there's some big reasons for that. 
So now if we think about an underactive immune system, remember that your immune system is there not just to protect you from infection, but also to protect you from cancer. When a cell starts to reproduce in a slightly abnormal manner, the genetic material in the cell can accumulate and start to go a little wonky. And over time, if that cell continues to replicate and to reproduce, it's going to create a tumor, a cancer. So part of what the immune system does, it does cancer surveillance. When it sees these cells that are reproducing a little abnormally, it kills them off. It gets rid of them so that we don't develop cancer. So that's the internal threat. So when we have an underactive immune system, we have an increased risk for cancer. And in terms of the external threat, that would be infection, viral infections, bacterial infections, fungal, parasitic, et cetera. So what we are really all in search of is that Goldilocks immune system, not overactive, where we're developing autoimmune disease, allergies, or in the case of viral infections like SARS-CoV-2, we are overshooting the mark and our immune system is reacting so aggressively to the virus that we're actually destroying normal tissue. We know that a lot of people who've died during this pandemic have actually died from an overblown immune response from the cytokine storm we've heard so much about in the last few years that can lead to destruction of the lung tissue and acute respiratory distress syndrome. At the same time, we don't want to have an immune system that's not active enough and we don't clear the virus. So we want that immune system that is just right. And it is our gut bacteria that modulate that immune response and literally tell the immune cells, okay, this one you got to mount a big response. This is a big problem. This one, you can ignore. This one, give me a medium response. So if the gut microbiome is disrupted, you get disruption of the immune. And you already talked about it before, of course, that, and you mentioned it also in your book, something that was really interesting to you when the souls that, you know, did not survive a COVID infect, what was as sad as it was, it was very interesting to be able to look at, when possible, what was actually happening in their digestive systems, because now it's very clear that patients with problems within their digestive system is, is one of is very much linked with poor outcomes with viral infections such as COVID. So in order to determine what actually is going on in our gut, we have a lot of different modalities nowadays. Hopefully we're in the good hands as someone such as you, Robin, for people who would like to take a first step. There's plenty of tests we can take to determine what's going on in the gut. But if somebody came to you and they just want to know in general what's going on, they might not have any acute symptoms. Are there any tests that you recommend would be worthwhile looking into or whether it's the tests you can order at home or to speak to your doctor about? The microbiome testing, Ariana, is really in its infancy. And right now we're not at the point where we can do a commercial test, draw a straight line to things. There are lots of companies that are happy to take your money and do that testing. But as to whether the recommendations they're making are actually the right recommendations are questionable. There are some things that we do know. 
we know that the preferred food of the healthy gut bacteria, like Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, F. prosnitzii for short, the kind of bacteria in the gut that are taking the food and fermenting it and creating those essential short-chain fatty acids, essential not just for the health of the gut, but also for the for a healthy immune response, we know that their preferred food is plant fiber. Now, what does that mean? It certainly does not mean you need to be a vegan or a vegetarian or anything, but it does mean you have to eat a lot of plants. How many plants? We know from data from the American Gut Project, and the American Gut Project is a nonprofit that studies the microbiome founded by a very eminent researcher, Rob Knight, and some of his colleagues. And I do recommend for patients, if they do want to do microbiome testing, to number one, remember, they are contributing to the citizen scientists. They're not going to get information back that is going to necessarily be actionable to them in a specific way. But it's contributing to an important database. So the database from the American Gut Project, they did a study in 2018, and they looked at over 10,000 people globally. And they asked them an exhaustive series of questions about lifestyle, diet, medications, et cetera. And they found that the most accurate predictor for healthy microbiome was a number of different plant foods that people ate in a week. And that magic number, Ariana, was about 30 Yes, And so remember, we're getting credit for fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, spices, whole grains. And so many people are on these low-carb diets and they shy away from whole grains. But remember, when we think about what we call MAX, M-A-C, microbiota accessible carbohydrates, we're not just talking about kale and collards. We're talking about whole grains. We're talking about oats and brown rice and things like that and sorghum and different grains that people eat all over the world. Teff, these things, legumes, beans, and lentils, these things are very important, filled with fiber for feeding our gut bacteria. Again, there's commercial testing you can do and it will say, oh, eat yogurt, don't eat blackberries, etc. But I put a big question mark over a lot of that. In my practice for years, I did microbiome testing on virtually everyone. And I told them, I said, look, this isn't going to likely change what I tell you, but you are contributing to the science. And since I do see a lot of patients with autoimmune GI diseases, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, it was important to contribute to that science because what we're able to find out is what does that microbial signature look like with a lot of these diseases? Right. Now, what's unclear for a lot of these microbial signatures is whether these changes in the microbiome are a result of the disease or the cause of the disease. And even if we look at something like COVID, we know that a dysbiotic gut, which means a gut where the microbes are very disrupted, where we have low diversity, we're missing a lot of species, we have overgrowth of some less desirable ones, et cetera. So an imbalanced gut microbiome, we know, is again, risk factor for more severe COVID. But we know that when the SARS-CoV-2 virus binds to the ACE receptor, and remember, we have ACE receptors in the lungs, but also in the GI tract and other organs. And in fact, we have about 100 times denser ACE2 receptors in the GI tract than the lungs. And that's why so many people have had GI symptoms with this virus. And also that the GI tract is a frequent portal of entry. People often get this virus by swallowing it. All mm. the more reason to have stomach acid. Yes. But so the virus can infect intestinal cells and get into bo the body that way. 
But not only does a disrupted gut microbiome, again, increase the chances of a poor outcome, but the binding of the virus to the receptors can itself induce dysbiosis and changes in the gut microbiome. And we've seen that in a lot of patients with post-viral syndromes like long COVID. So we know dysbiosis is a risk factor for long COVID, but it is also a result of long COVID. So it is, it's very difficult to take the science and distill it down into these straight lines. You have this, therefore, this is what's going on. And so I caution people a little bit with a microbiome testing and recommend they would do it through a company like the American Gut Project when they do have an open season for soliciting samples. And it's almost, you can think of it like going to the cardiologist. If you were completely asymptomatic, you probably wouldn't really need to go to the cardiologist. Or if you went to the cardiologist, they would say, okay, so do you get chest pain when you run or walk upstairs? No. Do you get shorter breath when you walk upstairs? No. Do you get palpitations sometimes, especially for exercising? No. Do you, do you have a family history of heart disease? No. They would ask you all these things. And then they would look at risk factors for heart disease, like a family history. That's the one you can't do much about. They would look at your cholesterol, whether you have high blood pressure, whether you're diabetic, whether you're sedentary, whether you have obesity or overweight, whether you're a smoker. And then if they were a good cardiologist, they would then look at those risk factors and see, okay, where do we have some work to do? You're a bit overweight, and so we're going to work on that. Or your blood pressure is a bit high. I want you to, maybe there's a medication that needs to be prescribed, but ideally we're going to start with reducing the salt in your diet. We're going to start with exercise, stress reduction, et cetera, for the blood pressure. Look at the cholesterol. Again, what can we do? But they're not going to go straight into a cardiac catheterization in somebody who's asymptomatic, at least not a good cardiologist, because there's no need for that. So similarly, people are very obsessed with, I've got to see what's going on in my microbiome. That's saying I've got to sequence my genome. Know that since we've been able to sequence the entire human genome with the American Genome Project, the Human Genome Project, rather, that we've not cured not one genetic disease. This idea now that, oh, the microbiome is, we just need to know what's going on in the microbiome and take a probiotic and fix it and we'll be fine. That's an equally naive way of thinking about it. It is that complex interplay between genetic risk for many of us, environmental exposures, diet, lifestyle, what's going on in the microbiome. And we have to pay attention to all of it. And there's not a test that can, any more than that there's a nutritional test that can tell us, oh, this supplement or this vitamin or even this food, this one ingredient. So I think we have to take, we have to be looking at the forest, not the trees to really understand how this works. Mm, thank you for your perspective, Robin. And also it's a good reminder to not fall into the traps of our quick fix culture. Certain things can be used as tools, but they should be part of a therapy or a program that takes into account all the complexities of our lives. And a lot of things are actually not by adding stuff like supplements, as you aptly stated at the beginning of our conversation, but it's actually about leaving things out or stopping to take things, whether it's medications or even supplements. Something I really would like to get into is there's a quote in your book that I loved. I want to I want to read the quote first. And it's the following quote of Tony Goldberg, who's a professor of epidemiology. And he said, if all viruses suddenly disappeared, the world would be a wonderful place for about a day and a half, and then we'd all die. So in your book, you also speak about the virome, which only recently was discovered. And you also 
share that the majority of viruses actually coexist peacefully with us. Can you explain to us what the virome is? And then also, I would like to talk about why a viral infection isn't always a bad thing. Sure. I love that quote too, Ariana. So I'm glad. I'm so glad you picked up on that one because many of us have become sort of armchair virologists over the last few years. We've been forced to. So I think everyone's knowledge of viruses is much greater than it was. And I just want to make a little plug for a great podcast out there called This Week in Virology and TWIV. And This Week in Virology was a small little podcast that I think a couple dozen people listened to before the pandemic. And then it all of a sudden became so interesting. And I think they did a great public service of having a lot of updates, particularly early on when there was a lot of confusion about vaccines and things like that. So to show how something like that just exploded and how timely it was that they were already doing that. But the same way that we have been a little bit, I think, naive in the medical community in thinking about bacteria, I think back to when I was in medical school in the late 80s and early 90s, and we were really focused on eradicating germs. And that turned out to not be such a good idea of taking that kind of scorched earth approach. And the same thing. So this pandemic has given viruses a little bit of a bad rap. And while certainly there are some pathogenic viruses, and this is one of them, and Ebola and HIV, and we have many examples, as you point out, viruses fall into the same categories of good and bad that we use to categorize a bacteria that live with us. And Again, some of the viruses can cause illness, but the majority do coexist peacefully and some actually protect you. So one of the really interesting thing about viruses is, of course, they are everywhere like bacteria. So we have about 10 times as many bacterial cells as human cells. And then we have 10 times as many viruses as bacteria. I don't know that this kind of square root math that I'm the best at it, but somewhere around three to 400 trillion which my daughter tells me is more than stars in the universe. And they're not just in our body. They're in the environment. They're in the Sahara Desert. They're in the oceans. They are everywhere. And when we all, I think, know now that viruses are not fully alive on their own, they have to infect a living bacterial animal or plant cell in order to become animated and become alive. And when it infects a cell, if it infects a cell from the reproductive system, a sperm cell or an ovum, it can then incorporate into our genetic material and become inherited. So somewhere around 7 to 10% of our genetic material, of our DNA as humans, actually comes from viruses. And these viral proteins are involved in some really important bodily functions, like in making memories, in placental proteins that are involved in reproduction. So this is examples of how viruses can be really important. And I think Again, I think it's important to be a little bit doing some PR for viruses of, again, how they can help you. So we know that certain strains of viruses that are found in the lungs can help you fight respiratory illnesses. And there's a huge industry in the chemotherapy industry of looking at viruses, sorry, in the microbiology industry, not chemotherapy, that can look at viruses that can kill antibiotic-resistant strains. The antibiotics, bacteria have outsmarted most of the antibiotics, so they're now looking at viruses that can kill some of those. We know that a virus similar to the one that causes dengue fever is linked to delayed progression to AIDS in people who have HIV. 
infection with herpes virus can also make you less susceptible to bubonic plague. Fortunately, that's not something we have to worry about at the moment, but that is so... Again, it is not that to go out and try and don't not have any viruses in our body, as Professor Goldberg said, would be a very bad idea. So it brings us back to this idea of balance, balance within the microbiome. We don't need all good bacteria, nor would that be healthy. And we don't need to have no viruses. That would also be healthy. We need a balance. But you know what? What's striking, Ariana, is that so often people, and maybe it is just a sort of competitive moment we're in. So people will say, okay, vitamin D is good for you. Maybe a normal level is 35 to 65 or something. But then people want a vitamin D level of 70 or 80. And it's no, that that's like saying you want to be seven foot tall because being seven foot is better than being six foot or five, six. And actually it can backfire because you can see vitamin D toxicity. And of course, a lot of these things are really supported by the supplement industry, the pharmaceutical industry, this idea of you need more. But more is not always more. Sometimes more is less and good enough. We need microbial balance. We don't need a perfect microbiome. We can't achieve a perfect microbiome. And to say that we're never going to have some disruption of our microbiome is like saying we're never going to age. It's going to happen, but we want to age well. So as our microbiome changes, we want it to change in a way that still supports our health But the idea that we're going to front load it with good bacteria by going to buy a probiotic from the store is a little bit of wishful thinking. Now, we can make significant changes by changing our diet. So if you want to front load your diet with a lot of healthy plant fiber, ideally more than 30 different plants per week, that can be tremendously helpful. And with regards to that, because for people who maybe are just starting to looking at enhancing their nutrition, it can 30, I'm personally plant-based, so 30 different plants a week doesn't sound insurmountable to me. It's pretty much what I've been doing for a long time. But for people who are just at the beginning, they're like, oh my God, 30 different plants. How am I going to do it? You already said you can include spices and herbs. And in your book, you actually share your system for people, how to introduce more fruits and vegetables into their life. Can you share a few tips with the listeners? And of course, they can find more detail when they read your book. Absolutely. The nuts and spices and herbs and whole grains are a little bit easier, but the vegetables seem to be what people struggle a lot with. So in my practice for over a decade now, I've been telling my patients to follow the one, two, three rule. And the one, two, three rule is one vegetable at breakfast, two at lunch, three at dinner. I'm a green smoothie aficionado. So I tend to get at least three right in the morning. I dump it all into the Vitamix. I'll typically make a smoothie with coconut water. And then there's spinach and kale or spinach and collards or kale and collards, at least two greens, usually a stalk of celery, that sort of stringy fiber is very good for the microbiome. I'll often put in some parsley and ginger and then some fruit, whatever I have on hand. Right now I have fresh pineapple. So that went in this morning. It might be kiwi. It might be frozen mango if I don't have fresh. And I blend that all up. But the one, two, three rule, make sure that you're getting in those six servings of vegetables a day. The other thing I'll remind people, I'll say, okay, 30 plants a week sounds like a lot, but let's start with a bowl of oatmeal. My oatmeal, I use a nut-based milk or a plant-based milk. So I usually will use almond milk or coconut milk. So I get one point for that. The oats themselves are two. Raisins, pumpkin seeds, walnuts, that's five or up to. I'll put blueberries in there, six. I usually put a little bit of shaved coconut on top. If I'm using almond milk, that's seven. Little dash of maple syrup or honey, that's eight. You can keep going. You can start with a basic salad of lettuce. You can add 
cucumber, tomatoes, maybe some chickpeas, some shaved carrots, throw in a couple of broccoli florets. You can really keep going. So with a bowl of oatmeal and a salad, you can get to 20 in a day. Absolutely. Yes. And again, for those people out there who may not be plant-based, like you can have a piece of chicken or fish or something with that too, but you have to get in the plants. So I really, I mean, there are other, many other reasons to consider not eating animals, including ethical reasons and environmental reasons. But if you are approaching the food from a health point of view, I am non-denominational in that setting. And I will tell you that you can create an absolutely healthy gut, still eating some other, some animal protein, but you have to have to make sure you're getting the plants in. That's the part that's non-negotiable. 100%. Yes. And uh, nutrition aside, in your book, you also talk about mastering your mind and changing the environment. Amongst other, you're a big fan of dirt. And uh, we talked a little bit about that before we hit record. We shared a little bit about each of our upbringing and youth. And in your case, I'll let you share that. In my case, I grew up in places like Sierra Leone in West Africa and New Delhi in India and Spain. And I shared with you that my father actually was a big proponent of my younger brother and I rolling around in the dirt and the kitchen and said, that's good for us. And then you also shared about you growing up in Jamaica. Jamaica. And can you yes. share a little bit about that? Sure. Talk Absolutely. About I grew up in Jamaica. My family left Jamaica when I was about 14. And my father's family is from India and my grandfather. So that family is Hindu. My grandfather was a sugarcane farmer, but because he was Hindu, he didn't eat beef. He also didn't eat pork. So they had they had other animals. They had goats and geese and things like that. And uh, they grew most of the food and we would run around in the sugarcane fields barefoot. And I'm pretty sure I had pinworm as a child when I think back to it. Now, what's interesting is they found that some parasites like pinworm are protective against autoimmune diseases, but it's not that there are two mechanisms there. Number one, it may be that when you have a chronic sort of mild parasitic infection, that your immune system becomes used to it. And so it's not overreacting. So it dampens it down. But the other is that parasites like pinworm are a sign, like you're walking barefoot. That's how you get it typically, right? You're walking barefoot in areas where there have been animal feces. Now, I'm not advocating that people have their kids walking, stepping on dog poo. Let's be clear, not a good idea. (laughs) But an inadvertent side effect of my dirty childhood, if you will, which I'm very grateful for, is that I was eating food that was grown organically because that was all people did back then. My grandfather wasn't using pesticides, et cetera, was growing, eating a lot of food that was grown locally. We did not eat a lot of processed food in Jamaica. Like you, we were fortunate to have a lot of help in the home. So had people who were able to cook the food from scratch, et cetera. And I do remember my grandfather though, we didn't live on the farm. We lived in the city, but we would go out many weekends And I remember when we would spend the weekend out there, if my parents were traveling, they would typically drop us off out there. And my grandfather always insisted that we wash our feet before we go to bed. The rest, we could be filthy from the ankles up. The feet needed to be clean. It was very interesting. And I remember very distinctly when my grandfather on his farm got indoor plumbing. Because before then, we had these little, we call them chimney pots, onto the bed. And that's where you went. And it got emptied by somebody in the morning. And I remember, and they had they had like an outdoor, I guess like an outhouse 
It was quite a nice one, and there was a big plum tree over it that was probably getting a lot of good manure from the outhouse. And it was exciting to go out there. For us coming from the city with all the modern conveniences, it was like a little adventure. And then I remember when my grandfather's farm got the indoor plumbing. But all of this to say that I got exposed to nature a lot. And I'm glad you brought it up, Ariana, because it's not just you're exposed to nature, so you maybe have less autoimmune disease. We know that exposure to nature is a very important uh, component of a healthy immune system. And for example, 100 years ago with the Spanish flu epidemic, we saw that soldiers who recuperated outside had a much lower mortality. In one study, 13% mortality versus 40%, 40% mortality versus 13 for the soldiers who were recovering inside the hospital. And so this is something called the open air factor, the OAF. The open air factor is defined as a germicidal constituent in open air that is toxic, that is harmful to pathogens and viruses and so on. So not only does being outside decrease transmission, it can also improve recovery. We know that the main place we get our microbes from is from the soil. We initially get them during birth. Those of us especially who are lucky enough to come out through the birth canal and not through a C-section, we swallow those microbes in our mother's area in the perineum, that area between the vagina and anus, the head faces posteriorly, and that's the reason we come out head first to get all those microbes. But the other place where we continue to get them is from soil. So we have to think about our exposure to nature and soil microbes. We have to think about the food we're eating. Where is it grown, even if it's organic? Is it organic industrial? And certainly if you're eating organic Oreos, you're not doing anything for your microbiome. But I really try and support the local farmer's markets. I go to the farmer's market here in DuPont Circle in Washington every Sunday And I like to see those funny looking carrots. They're gnarly looking. They've got Mm -hmm. dirt on them. Very suspicious of the carrots in the supermarket that are all 4.3 inches long, exactly. (laughs) Uniform orange color, no dirt. And worse, they're in a plastic bag. I'm like, where are these carrots coming from? So I encourage people to themselves get a little bit dirty, maybe not be super sanitizing your body with all these chemical products all the time. And to also eat food that's a little bit dirty that was actually grown in microbially rich. Yes, I love your endorsement of dirt. We all need to get dirtier in that sense and reconnect with the earth in whichever way we can, whether it's by grounding barefoot, whether it's going to farmers markets and getting all that good dirt and all the great microbes that come with that on the beautiful vegetables instead of these standardized veggies, even if they're organic, we get at the supermarket. And hugging trees. You talk about that in your book too. Yes, hugging trees. Shinrin-yoku, the Japanese practice of forest bathing. We've Mm -hmm. seen articles showing it can reduce stress. So that's more perceived feeling, but it can also reduce blood pressure. It can improve heart rate. It can improve wound healing. Mm -hmm. And we know it also can help with resiliency to viruses. So I have some really good tips in the book of how to forest bathe. And even if you're not in the forest and you just have a small park, some tips for how you can bring some of that nature in. Because when you combine the antiviral effects of open air plus the exposure to soil microbes, we're really talking now about quite powerful medicine. Yes, excellent. And I also highly recommend kissing trees. I kiss my oak tree every day. Oh, I love that. Well, it doesn't only make me feel good now. I know I'm actually also supporting my microbiome, which is excellent. 
<laughs> and Robin, you have so many really easily to understand and applicable tips in your book. Again, I highly recommend your book to my audience. I would like to know from you something aside from all these great tips that you already shared with us, but I'd like to ask each guest about is that maybe they've had for all of their lives or it's something they picked up recently that has enhanced or optimized them spiritually or physically. Is there something you're willing to share with us? Absolutely. I talk in the book about my top 10 list, and it really is a combination of me personally as well as me professionally. And that includes things like eating more vegetables, eating less factory food, including some fermented food, drinking less alcohol or no alcohol, hydrating, avoiding unnecessary medications, getting more sleep, exercise, getting outside, getting quiet. So these are all sort of big categories, right? And you don't have to hit all of them all at once. The thing that I have found for me, and I, in my practice for many years, had a biofeedback practitioner who did this with patients, but I didn't really do it myself, was the breath, mm. Ariana, the breath. So I find myself putting one hand on my belly and really practicing my belly breathing, maybe just 10, 12 breaths at a time, several times throughout the day. I'm a devotee of heated vinyasa flow yoga. I shout out to my studio, Down Dog, not my personal studio, but the studio community that I participate in, Down Dog Yoga in Washington, D.C. And I, during Shavasana at the end of the practice, I'm trying to do that. And that certainly helps to quiet you down. But during that practice, it's a very vigorous practice. I'm also just trying to keep up with the flow. So I find I will do this in the morning when I first wake up. I was in New York yesterday all day for meetings and even just in the cab going from place to place on the train, I did it when I'm feeling a bit revved up and like I have a lot to do and maybe a bit overwhelmed. I'll put one hand, usually my right hand on my belly and I'll practice my belly breath. And I talk about this in the book too. A lot of times when people think about t doing deep breathing, they're really inhaling with their chest. That, mm -hmm. What that does is it actually creates a lot of stress in your upper body when you take that big breath in this, with your chest. Your shoulders raise, your sort of neck disappears. But if you belly breathe, so you put one hand on your belly, and when you take a breath in, ideally with your nose, the stomach, your abdomen should expand. It should rise up or move out if you're sitting down. And then as you exhale slowly, it should move in. And it takes a little bit of work. And I, I do it, sometimes I do it in front of the mirror and I look to see, are my shoulders moving? I want my chest to be perfectly still and I want to just see that belly going in and out. And I focus more on the exhale than the inhale. And what that does is it triggers your parasympathetic nervous system, which sort of calms everything down, right? Gets rid of that flight or flight response. And so that is a thing that I've known about for years. I wrote about that in my first book, Gut Bliss, all the way back in 2013. But I wasn't really an avid practitioner. All the other things in the book I was pretty good about doing, but not so much that. And part of it was, Ariana, because I was like, I'm too busy to stop and breathe like that. Like I'm rushing around trying to get from here to there. But I felt, I found it has really made such a profound difference. And it really it costs nothing and it doesn't take a lot of time. Ideally, I'm friends with the wonderful Light Watkins, who's written lots of books about meditation and breath work. And I'd love to get to what Light recommends of doing this for 20 minutes a few times a day. But I'd encourage people to do what just feels doable, which maybe 10 breaths will take you maybe 40 seconds, a minute to do 10 breaths like that and try to focus, make the 
exhale a little bit longer, a second or two longer than the inhale. But I also recommend you don't have to get too caught up in it. It doesn't have to be four seconds or seven seconds or six seconds. Take a breath in, push your belly out, take a breath out, belly should come in and do that maybe 10 or 12 times to start with your eyes closed. And I found that particularly as things have gotten quite a bit busier for me with this last book, that it's super helpful. So thank you for asking. Mm, Thank you for sharing, Robin. And I think there's so many of us who are accustomed to not breathing deeply or breathing into our chest, especially if you want to feel like you want to suck that belly in. (laughs) Poor belly. Let's let it expand and breathe into it at least a few times a day. That's very beneficial. Really great advice. Thank you for sharing that practice. And people who want to learn more about you, Robin, of course, they can read your books, your latest book, The Antiviral Gut. You have fantastic resources on your website, free resources as well. Can you share where people can find you? Absolutely. So there are two websites at the moment, but that will be consolidated into one. And the best website is the robinchutkan.com. So that's R-O-B-Y-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N.com. And as you said, we have some free gut guides on there. That's information about, I think we'll have 35 different GI conditions from things like gastroparesis to more common conditions like constipation. We have a free 78-page guide to getting regular. (laughs) That's an opt-in when you subscribe to our monthly newsletter. And the newsletter, we don't do any, we don't sell your email or anything like that. We put out a monthly blog about once a month, once every six weeks with usually some really interesting scientific articles. I do a free office hours. I used to do it on Zoom. Now I do it on Instagram Live every Tuesday at noon where I pick a different topic. I talk about it for about 20 minutes and then I take the rest of the hour questions. I love that. That's Tuesdays at noon. Eastern Standard Time, you can find me on Instagram at gutbliss. And I really, it's one of the things that I most love is the educational piece of this and being able to connect with people live and answer their questions and sometimes give them the reassurance that they need, sometimes give them information that might be a little bit scary, but that they also need to hear. And I really do enjoy that. Super. Thank you for everything you're doing to enhance our well-being and all these wonderful offerings and free resources you put out there amidst your very busy schedule. And in that vein, also, thank you for making time for us today and bringing all your wisdom and great practical advice to us. Most grateful, Robin. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution.